your positive, positive, positive imprint. 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 Stories are everywhere. People and their positive action inspire positive achievements. Your PI could mean the world to you. Get ready for your positive imprint. Well, hello, this is Catherine Praisewater, your host of Your Positive Imprint. I am very excited to feature Father Ray Kelly on my show. Many of you will recognize Father Ray as the Irish priest who sang a song at a wedding written by a bridesmaid to the tune of Hallelujah. It had been videotaped and posted onto YouTube, and Father had millions of views. Well, I had not seen this video myself until it was brought to my attention by me Irish friend Deirdre, who is now back in Ireland listening to the show over at the pub, I'm sure. Cheers, Deirdre! Father and I had such a wonderful conversation, full of laughter, lots of inspiration. But what strikes me most of all is how absolutely human Father Ray Kelly is. You will just love listening to his journey into the priesthood, and you'll love his little tidbits that he shares about his experiences on Britain's Got Talent. Well, he continues to serve his parishioners over in Ireland at Old Castle County Meet. And right now he is working on the production of his next album. And if you want to become an executive producer of Father Ray Kelly's new album, then you can head over to kickstarter.com and search Father, all spelled out, Father Ray Kelly's third album. Again, that is kickstarter.com. You can also get this information from his Facebook page at Reverend Ray Kelly. And I will also provide information at yourpositiveimprint.com under the episodes page. And Father also does concerts, so if you want to bring him over to your area, then of course contact him. Actually, I have a goal that includes Chris Knoll, who is my favorite pianist. I use Chris's music for this podcast. For me, he is a brilliant composer. But for you and many others, you'll know him best as John Denver's keyboard player. Well, a goal of mine is to bring Chris on piano and Father Ray Kelly on vocals together for a show. The two would just have a stellar, rad time, not to mention how much fun the audience would have. Well, thank you, listeners, for being here with me at Your Positive Imprint. What's your P.I.? I have Father Ray Kelly here from Ireland. He's known for so many different positive imprints, and I don't want to label him with any one single one. He has inspired millions around our wonderful globe with his positive imprint. Welcome, Father Ray. Thank you, Catherine. My pleasure to be here. Absolutely. Oh, thank you. Well, I want to share with others your, first of all, your your story of what brought you to the priesthood. Yeah, I guess uh, I was a late vocation. I was very late to the priesthood. I was about, uh, I was 35 years of age when I was ordained. So I had worked in Dublin for about nearly nearly 11 years in the in the civil service and the Irish government offices there. And um, I remember when I was 16 or 17 thinking about priesthood. All right. But uh, I think something scared me off very, very fast. And I, I then I got a job and I started having money in my pocket. So that changed me completely <laughs> as regards <laughs> thinking about priesthood. <laughs> and it's strange then how things come back to you, you know. I was about, um, I remember back in 1979, Pope John Paul II came to Ireland and uh, it was a great occasion that we had Pope Francis in Ireland actually last year, last August as well. But Pope John Paul came in September of 79 
And I thought uh, it was a great experience to meet the Pope and uh, go. I was in, in one of the, the locations where he was saying mass and all of that. And then the following year, a group of us in, in Dublin, working in Dublin, part of the Catholic Youth Council, decided to pay a return visit to, to Rome to thank Pope John Paul for coming to Ireland. And uh, so an organisation was set up where about a thousand young people travelled over to Rome for a nine day trip, a nine day pilgrimage, if you like. And I was on that with a number of my friends from work as well. And that was a great experience in itself. And um, we had met him in St. Peter's Square. And then he invited us out to Castel Gandolfo for a mass with us. And, uh, and then he invited us the following evening back to Castel Gandolfo again for a concert where he, he gave, shared with us a, a, a talk. And then we put on a concert for him. And I remember singing at the time. Uh, I was one of the ones picked to entertain him. And I remember singing a song called Danny Boy. And uh, afterwards, he presented me with the rosary beads, as he usually does to most people. Mm. And it was a great experience. And I got to, to photograph taken with him with our group as well. So thought no more about that. You know, that was fine. Lovely experience and all that. And it's strange when I come back then. Uh, you've been Catholic now. You might be familiar with Lent, obviously, the season of Lent. And you know how we, we like to do little sacrifices or whatever. Uh, whether it's giving up sugar in your tea or your coffee or uh, whether it's going as children would be encouraged to go off sweets maybe or something. And remember when I was young, my father used to always make sure we'd get up and go to mass during the mornings of Lent before school. So I kind of thought when I came back from Rome that time, you know, I must do something for Lent now this year because I would have been a kind of a hit and miss Catholic kind of go to mass. <laughs> when, I, when I was home at weekends, my mother and father were there. I'd go to mass with them. But when I was back in Dublin, you know, I was in the big lights, the big city, you know, I had more, more, more things to worry about than going to church on a Sunday or something like that. So anyway, I started going to mass um, during the season of Lent and the church was just across the road from where I worked. And uh, I began to uh, enjoy it. It was a lovely 20 minute, half hour relaxing time, about eight o'clock, half eight in the morning. And then I'd go into work after that and do my daily work. I suppose about maybe three. Yeah, I went through the whole season of Lent and Easter came then. And then I kind of missed it. And I says, maybe I'll continue to do that, you know, and thought no more about it. And just got up every morning a bit earlier and went to mass. And I suppose maybe about six months into doing that, I began to have these thoughts in my head. And the thought was, Ray, you know, it was like somebody was speaking to you almost in your head. Ray, you know, you could be up there doing what that guy is doing. And that was the line. Ray, you could be up there doing, you know, what that guy is doing. I thought no more about it for a while. And I said, oh, no, you're definitely cracking up here now. No way. No way. No way would you even think about being up there. Absolutely not. So that went on for a while. And then it would go for a while. And I'd be saying, yeah, it was all in my head. It definitely was in my head. You know, it's gone now. Thanks be to God. It's gone. It's finished. And then I, when it was gone for so long, I was a bit disappointed. And then it would come back again. So it was like almost a, a tug of war going on in my head for a long, long, for maybe over a year. And uh, the following year, then John Paul II came to UK. And I remember going over to Edinburgh to visit him. I think it was 1981 or 82. Uh, and um, we had a great experience again. We went to Mass. He was in Murrayfield, said Mass in Murrayfield, the rugby pitch in Murrayfield. Then I came back from there and this thing was still annoying me and it was bugging me and I didn't know what to do with it. And I said to myself, the only way I can deal with this now is, is, is talk to somebody, another priest about it. And I did. I talked to a priest in Dublin uh, with the order of the MSCs, the Sacred Heart Missionary Priest Order. 
And he sat me down and we chatted and I told him what was going on. And he said, the best thing to do is really is really come in for a weekend into the seminary and see what it's like, you know. So told nobody, had no idea whatsoever I was going. I didn't just told my mother and father I wasn't going home that weekend. <laughs> didn't, didn't tell them what was happening or a thing. And I went for a weekend to live in with these guys in, in Black Rock in Dublin, just out on the south side of Dublin. And I really enjoyed it. And it was met a lot of the other students and I chatted with them. And, you know, I felt kind of very much at home. And I came home then with the idea that maybe I'd give it a try. And then I said, well, I better break the news to my mother and father. So I sat down with mother and father and I told them because they knew there was something wrong with me. And they were worried in case maybe I was ill or something. And I didn't want to tell them, you know, or that, you know. So anyway, I uh, sat down with my mother and father and explained to them what was going on. And uh, I, my mother then said, um, well, her cousin, Father Joe Pettit, is a Kiltegan priest. I'm another missionary order, St. Patrick's Missionary Society. They have houses in the UK, as far as I know, and they have houses in America as well. And Father Joe was home from Nigeria on, on holidays, and he was visiting us, and my mother told him about what I was thinking. And he said, why don't you try Kiltegan, the order that we used belong to? And I thought, well, maybe I would, you know. And I, it's kind of like when you're, when you're looking for something, you shop around, basically, you know, you want to get the best product. <laughs> you want to go to the best place, you know. So, so anyway, I met Father Joe and I contacted the Kiltegan fathers and Easter was coming up and they invited me to go for a few days to Kiltegan in County Wicklow, which is right in the mountains of County Wicklow. It's a beautiful area. And um, I went for a, what we call a live-in there, which would be, you go in from maybe, it was Holy Week, so I went in from about Holy Thursday up to Easter Sunday. And uh, even driving into the place, it was so remote and so peaceful, and there was a lake and surrounded by fields and oh, trees wow. and cows mooing in the field and, and animals all around. This is, this is lovely. This is just now. And, and I kind of almost there and then I kind of made the decision because I felt if I wanted to continue with this, I didn't want to be in Dublin as well because I'd lived in Dublin for 11 years and I kind of felt, well, you know, it mightn't be good for my vocation if I'm really thinking about this because I'd have my friends there still and they'd be coming to visit me and all of that. So I kind of felt that I better make the cut off as best I could. So that's what I exactly did. And uh, told on all my, I think I only found out actually recently, my mother was trying to contact somebody to see what she make. Would they try and get me to change my mind? But oh my uh, I, goodness. Well, you see, mothers would do that because <laughs> she she was... You know, I was in the civil service. It was her responsibility. She got me the job initially after interviews and that going for interviews. And it was like going back those years back in the in the uh, 70s. You got into the civil service. You were secure for life. You had a good pensionable job. You know, no more hitches. You'd be able to get a mortgage, have your own car and all of that. And indeed, I had all that during my years there. But uh, to give up all that now didn't make sense to my mother at all, you know. So I suppose inadvertently she was trying to maybe get around it to see, but to persuade me not, not to go. But she didn't actually say it to me directly. But in the meantime, anyway, I did. I sold my house. I sold my car. I packed up my job and I left for Kiltegan in, for September of 1982. And I spent seven years. First year was a spiritual year in which you kind of um, learning about prayer. And there was 18 of us in the class. So we were I was the oldest, probably I was about 29 at the time. And uh, we got on. It was my first experience as well of actually um, living in a community life, you know, because 
I'd always been independent. I never went to a boarding school. You know, I'd always either lived at home or in my own apartments in Dublin or whatever. So this was a whole new experience for me. And I suppose, you know, in hindsight, looking back in it, I never really, only recent times, and I've started to write a book, right? And it was only when I was writing about all of this that I realized, you know, the amount of actually what I did give up. But I never I never sort of gave myself a pat on the back now for doing anything like uh-huh. that. Or anything. I just felt that this was what I had to do. And I suppose, you know, the power of God is, is, is unreal in all our lives. And I suppose that was power was working there. The Holy Spirit was working there all the time. And I just didn't recognize it. I just felt well, this is what I have to do now. But I did do did give it just try it for one year. And I said one year and one year only. And if this doesn't work out, I was lucky that I had my job to go back to. They were going to hold the job for me for 12 years, which was fantastic. For 12 years? 12 years. Yeah. Which was amazing. Yeah. yeah. So even if I left after two years or three years or even after I was ordained and I didn't want to be a priest anymore, I could still get my job back in the civil service. So that was that was that was a really positive thing for me as well, because I felt a little bit more secure then in making this big change in my life, you know. So that was it. I joined the spiritual year class. We we were, uh, as I said, a class of 18. We were learning about prayer, but it was more, there was no pressure on studies as such. We had lectures, but there was no pressure on prayer, on, on studies, as much as you achieve, you achieve the level you could achieve. And they were happy with that. And if you improve on it, you keep that standard up as well. But it was a great year. We were, um, one of the first things we had to prepare for was a musical. And the kid, oh, we had a guy, we had a music a guy coming into us producing a musical and teaching us um, homiletics and teaching us um, speech and drama, uh, an ex army colonel and a very British posh accent. You can imagine one of these big guys, big stout man with a big cigar out of his mouth. That kind of an image, you know. <laughs> but he was he was a, he was a real a real lovable character, you know. He actually chose the musical The King and I. Now, you can imagine 18 guys trying to act out the musical The King and I. And amazingly, it worked. We were all kind of, um, I was typecast as Lady Tiang, the king's first wife. Another guy was Anna, (laughs) Anna from the UK, who was coming out as the, the governess. And it was just unreal. But the whole aim behind it really was for us to accept ourselves as we are, uh, warts and all, you know, get over your inhibitions, you know, and stuff like that. Even he put his, he put his maybe lying on the ground sort of, um, and he'd put on some Strauss music and he'd put, put us through some maybe meditations. And sometimes he'd get up and, and t- tell us to waltz around like fairies, basically around, around the place. And of course, some of the guys were so macho, they were kind of rebelling against the whole thing anyway. You know? <laughs> yeah, I can but imagine. anyway, he, he got the message through that he look at these are OK. And even so, one, I remember one time he used to tell us, boys, when you get out of your bedroom in the morning, go to your mirror. And you look at the mirror and say, I am beautiful, you know, this kind of thing, you know. So, um, I mean, he was very ahead of his time, really, in, in his thinking and working with us. So it was a great experience. And then we came to what's called a St. Ignatian retreat, which is a 30 day retreat, 30 days of silence. And uh, that was difficult. But we had a break during it where we could talk for one day, I think one or two days during the whole 30 days. Again. And we go through the whole story of Jesus's passion and, and, and all of that and meditations. And uh, it finishes up then the Friday after Good Friday, which is Holy or um, Easter Sunday and then the following Friday. So then family could come and visit us. So that was the first year. Then there was two more years of philosophy down in Cork in, in, in County Cork in the south of Ireland. 
And then I was back in the senior house in Kiltegan for three or four more years where I did my theology. And uh, during that time, then there was a lot of music involved in our lives because a lot of the guys that was, I was with had were great musicians, piano, keyboards, um, guitars. I could sing. There were a lot of other guys could sing. So we had some great music. And in our second year in theology there, this lady called Kathleen Cullen uh, was running the Dublin City Marathon and she wanted to raise some funds. And she asked some of us, would we write a song for it to kind of raise money for for youth aid in Africa and different things like that. So uh, my, I wrote a song and another guy put music to it, Eric Armour from Scotland, Sterling in Scotland. And actually, we actually recorded it. And now I'm talking about one of the, the small, the vinyl, you know, records. I have that record still, and I mean, um, we recorded it anyway. And that was our first experience, my first experience of ever being in a recording studio. And we actually formed a group then because we needed a title and a band name. We called ourselves Rafiki, which is a Swahili word meaning friends. And there was I five of us. I love that. In- that's just, that's very, that's very positive. That's inspiring. We were, we were, I suppose we were nearly before like Take That and we were before Westlife and Boy Zone and all these guys. We were kind of like Priest Zone, really. You know, we were students to be priests, but we were, had our own boy band, for want of a better word, if you know what I mean. And uh, we used to do then charity gigs and people would come into the college and we'd entertain them as well and all of that kind of thing. So that's kind of where all that came from. And, and then it was ordained and... After I was ordained, then in 1989, I was assigned to South Africa. So I had to get visas and all of that to go to South Africa and uh, went out in September of 89 after being ordained in the June of 89. Then I was out there only three months, about September, October, and I'm December. Back up for a second. So which order you you decided to I was, go to? Yes, the St. Patrick's Missionary Society or the Kiltegan priests, as as they were called. Okay, so it is the Mission Society, and they are okay because I was reading that you your mission work in South Africa as well as United States. Okay, so continue with this positive imprint in South Africa. Okay, so (laughs) we went. I was assigned. uh, South Africa was just after Nelson Mandela. He was released from Robben Island on the 11th of February, 1989. I remember the date because it's the Feast of Our Lady of Lourdes. And uh, he was released. And we went out then, a few of us went out there in the missions in September of 89, 1989. We were learning the language first, the Northern Sotho language. And I was going to spend about six months doing that, living in a very rural area, very poor electricity. Um, batteries often had to come on for, for to have the lights on and stuff like that you know, chargers or whatever we had available to us to keep things going. I was about three months into learning the language when, and now bearing in mind as well, that there was no mobile phones at this time. The only communication I had with home was a phone call if I made it through a landline uh, and or else a letter. And the letter would take maybe 10 days. Right. So it wasn't as, as modern as it, as it is now. So I got a phone call from um, the diocesan office about the second week of December, my mother was on uh, to say that my dad was very sick. They didn't know whether it was a brain tumor or Alzheimer's or what it was, but the doctors thought I should be told and maybe to get home because they weren't sh- they were very uncertain. So I booked my flight home from Johannesburg, and uh, li- I was living about seven hours drive from Johannesburg. And I got the flight there in Joburg and got home to Dublin. My dad was eventually diagnosed with a brain tumour 
and he was given three to six months and he actually died within he was he actually died on the 11th of the 14th of february the following year which was a few months he only got a few months really you know he'd he'd a brain tumor so well, i'm I, so sorry but i'm glad that you were able to fly back and be with yeah, the family absolutely it was very very meaningful and very special absolutely and, and um you know i know he was he was very excited actually around the time i was ordained which was really only six seven months before all that you know he was very excited over me being a priest and you know i suppose you know i was so thrilled that he actually lived to see that as well you know but anyway after my dad died in february of 1990 i stayed at home with mum for a while and we organized everything my father's grave and the headstone and what you do and then I went back around April of 1990, and it was only back then three months when the phone rang again. This time it was my mother. She was very ill. She was after getting a heart attack, and it was touch and go for her. So I really didn't know what to do because I was so far away, and you know I felt guilty about having to go home again because I was only back a few months. And then the cost of flights and everything like that. So I remember two Franciscan nuns come into me and I was really upset at the time. And they said to me, what's wrong? And I explained to them, they said, for God's sake, go and book up your flight and go home and be with your mother. If she lives, great, you can come back to us. But if she dies, at least you'll be with her. So I did that and I went home and I spent a month with her. She survived. She only died then in, in 2004, which would, be, would have been um, nearly 12, 14 years later anyway, you know. So I went back to Africa after that then, and I found it so difficult to settle down after that. I was still trying to study the Sutu, northern Sutu language and saying mass in it and stuff like that. I could say mass in the language, all right, but I couldn't preach in it. I could preach in English and somebody would translate it for me. Then I decided, look, I wasn't happy. I wasn't happy at all. So about a year into that, then I came home because I just... I just felt that I was missing out. I probably hadn't grieved over my father very much anyway. And then my mother being ill and all of that. So there was a lot of things going on in my head. And I came home for a while and I said, I want, Kiltegan, my order, gave me some temporary appointments uh, as an army chaplain in the Curra County Kildare for a while, uh, working in Ochnacloy in County Tyrone, Northern Ireland for a while. And then I spent three or four months in America, traveling around the States, doing mission appeal work. And, um, and so what is mission appeal work? Mission appeal work, it's like you go into a parish, you'd be, the parish would be notified or they'd be told in advance, the parish priest would be notified that, that there was a missionary priest, Father Ray Kelly, was coming to promote his society, the Kiltegan Fathers, and to raise money for them, to raise dollars for them in their work in Africa. I would then drive off from my location in America and maybe drive to, I remember, I, that time I had no fear of driving in, on the other side of the road either when you're a lot younger now I wouldn't do it I don't think I do but I drove through Harlem I drove through the states I drove through New York I drove to Cape Cod I drove all over California down into Phoenix and Arizona you know I just was no problem you get into the car the beauty of the work was my working week was Saturday and Sunday but my weekend was Monday to Friday so I had a five-day well, weekend fun. <laughs> that's nice yeah you can sing a, a lot of weekend. songs on the road too definitely Definitely. It was amazing, you know, because then, OK, I'd leave the parish on a Sunday evening, head back to my headquarters and maybe Monday or Tuesday, I'd head off then for sightseeing all around the States and spend a few days touring around and 
back to another parish then on Friday evening again and that kind of thing. So it was great. So about three or four months of that as well. And then I came back to Ireland and I had more temporary appointments. And I was kind of getting tired of temporary appointments because you never really settle anywhere when you're just going from A to B all the time. So I felt I needed something more long term. And I applied to my bishop in the Diocese of Meath, where I am here now, Bishop Smith, and is actually a native of my parish here in Oldcastle, where I'm where I'm based as well. He only retired quite recently there, but uh, I applied to him, and he actually ordained me as well back in in June of 1989. I applied to him, and my superiors in Kiltegan were happy enough that I join the diocese for a couple of years and see what it was like. And so did I did you that. move from a order priest to an archdiocesan priest. Yeah, exactly. Okay. But I was still I was still attached to the Kiltegan Fathers until I could make up my mind. And about two years into working in my diocese here, I decided to be incarnated, which means you leave the society, the order, and you join the diocese. And, and that, that application has to go through Rome as well, but it's a formality, really, you know, it's a formality, you know. So I was in Mead Diocese now, and I worked in Navan in County Mead, which is a big town about 40 minutes drive from where I am now. And uh, I worked there for nine years, which I loved. Um, there was nine, there was five priests there with me, four priests and myself working in the parish. And uh, did a great musical society in, in the town, and I became part of that. Performed in shows like Jesus Christ Superstar, Joseph and the Amazing and Guys. So- what, what parts did you play? In Joseph, I played um, what was it? Joseph Reuben, one of the brothers. Uh, in Jesus Christ Superstar, I played Simon Peter, and uh, in Guys and Dolls, I played Nicely, Nicely Johnson, the big song, Sit Down, Sit Down, Sit Down, Sit Down, Sit Down, You're Rocking the Boat. Do you remember that one? <laughs> yes. I don't know whether you do or not, but anyway. <laughs> no, yes, and I'm, I'm right now. I have what's the buzz? Tell me what's happening. What's yeah? The there buzz? you go. <laughs> But uh, yeah, it was a great. Oh, yeah, I was in Fiddler on the Roof as well. And I was Mottle the Tailor, which is the guy that falls in love and gets married to one of the daughters of of Tevye. That was a great show as well. I was kind of a real kind of sort of fragile character, but had some great songs in that show as well. And uh, then I was after nine years in Navin. I looked for a transfer down nearer to home because my mother was wasn't too well. And uh, then I was in a parish about 15 minutes drive from my home place and I was about a year or two there when my mother was my mother died in 2004 and I stayed there for another two years and then the bishop appointed me parish priest here in Oldcastle where I am today and I'm 12 on my 13th year here in this parish now. What is one of your absolute favorite I I don't know if I want to use the word favorite but one of the most inspirational sermons that you remember giving that you felt that you really inspired your parishioners, your congregation? Oh, gosh, that's a <laughs> that's a hard question. And <laughs> um, I don't know. Usually, usually I think I find I can I can my homilies, particularly at funerals, can be very meaningful. And, uh, you know, I do. I put a lot of work into them and preparing them with families and talking about the person who has died. And I know people find comfort in them and that, you know, particularly funerals. They just, people just need to, you know, I mean, you don't get the full story all the time about a person, but, but, you, but, but you, you kind of share with them as much as possible about, about uh, the life they lived and the goodness that was in each of us. And I mean, that, that's always my, my theory, that there is so much goodness in, in each one of us, you know, that um, we are good people doing the best we can and trying to, you know, live the live the, the good positive life that we can and and um but i suppose 
I remind people as well that there are always people out there to knock us and to put us down and to make us feel lesser than we actually are. And I try to encourage people not to let that happen, particularly, you know, I suppose as well, because as I said we only get one we only get one shot at this going through this life and, and we have to do the best we can and give it the best we can. And that's that's my I try to get that message across as much as possible, I suppose, you know. Well, so you have left positive imprints. Well, South Africa, because you certainly served over there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and are there any stories that that are are just something that you remember so well that it it changed you also when you were in South Africa? Because it's a different culture. Oh, very much. And I mean, bearing in mind that apartheid was supposedly breaking up, but it hadn't really broke up because I think when Mandela was released that time in February of 89, I think a lot of the black people expected like the country just a, a magic wand to be waved over the place and everything was going to be all right. And now we're talking about 30 years, 30 years later, and it's still not all right. It's still, people are still struggling and in, in Soweto and in townships all over the country there. But I suppose some of the things that struck me were at the time, like I had to live in a white town. Uh, I couldn't live among the black people. Oh my goodness. Well, could you serve them? Oh yeah, I could serve them. Oh yeah, yeah, I could. I was able to drive out to the different parishes. We had about 19 churches in our parish. So you would touch base with most of them maybe over a month, monthly period, maybe once a month, you know, um, for services, for mass, for baptisms, for first communions and all of that. Weddings, whatever had to go on as you would carry out in, in, in the church. So, um, yeah, you might, you know, the first Sunday of the month would be one place. The second Sunday would be another place and you'd go around them all. You could have two or three play locations each Sunday or maybe Saturday evening. And then you were working in the heat as well. So it was pretty fairly heavy going, I have to say now, you know. And then not only that, but there was actually three languages in my parish. There was uh, Shangans, there was Northern Sutu, and then people spoke, people did speak English as well, but they spoke Afrikaans as well. So there was three or four, there was four five languages actually in the parish. So I was only learning one of them and trying to communicate in one of them, you know. Do you still keep in touch with any of the folks from there? I do. I do send Christmas cards. And now that we're with Messenger and Facebook and all of that, I'm, I'm on to people. Well, there that's all the nice. Time. It's lovely, yeah, because I have very good friends from that I made when we were out there. They were big into music as well. They were actually from Mauritius. And I've been to Mauritius on holidays with them and they go back there every so often. In fact, they invited me back next January for three weeks to Mauritius again. So it's very much in my in my head at the moment that I might do that, you know. So you're not just serving through your, your work as a priest, you and as a friend, you have been this singing priest everywhere you've gone and have brought, <laughs> I mean, that brings joy to people when they sing and they go to shows and they dance and they, it, it's a yeah. joyful thing. This ends part one of this episode. Part two will be launched on Thursday, where Father will talk about his experiences on Britain's Got Talent. Wow, that was awesome, Father Ray Kelly. Well, head over to my website, yourpositiveimprint.com, where you can sign up for email updates, and you can also find links to Father Ray Kelly's social media and other information. Music for this podcast is by Chris Knoll, chrisknoll.com. You can follow me on Instagram and Facebook, Your Positive Imprint, or Twitter, at What's Your PI. Please leave positive reviews and hit that positive button, that subscribe button, and subscribe to this podcast, Your Positive Imprint. What's Your PI? Subscribe now.